Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 124, where we will be covering chapters 14 through 16 of Gardens of the Moon by Stephen Erickson. Our next book club will cover chapters 17 through 19 of Gardens of the Moon. That's book six. Our spoiler policy is that Liz has read these books and knows everything that's going to happen. I have not and have no idea what's going to happen. We like to keep me ignorant. So we won't spoil anything past chapter 16 of this book. So what did you think of the Gadrobi Hills? I enjoyed this section. Lots it was, of action. Yeah, yeah. Lots of things going on. The The parts are, you know, the pieces are moving on the chessboard. So, so I enjoyed this section overall. Now, I do have to say there was more sort of plot and sort of introspection in this. There wasn't as many, like, I didn't find quite as many, like, mysteries and things to unpack, but we did get some cool reveals, particularly about, uh, you know, about some of the Warrens and a little bit more about uh, the gods and the Ascendants. So there was there was some stuff to chew on, but not as much as some of the other sections. So I don't have quite as many notes as I usually have. Well, that's okay, because I have plenty. Sweet. <laughs> Yeah, this this book, book five, is when we're really starting to see that plot convergence. We're seeing some of our uh, characters um, meet each other for the first time. We can tell the ball is rolling down the hill for whatever is going to happen in Darugistan. Um, it's getting, getting set up. But we start off with an epigraph in book five. And I thought I would read it because it's really a lovely bit of poetry and also kind of reveals some stuff about one of our characters. So... Here it goes. Beyond these thin hide walls, a child sits. Before her on worn silk, a deck is arrayed. She cannot yet speak, and the scenes before her, she's never before seen in this life. The child gazes on a lone card named Obelisk, the stone gray. She can feel its roughness in her mind. Obelisk stands on a grassy knoll, like a knuckle protruded from the earth, past and future. The child's eyes are wide with terror, for cracks have appeared in the stone of stones, and she knows the shattering has begun. And the author of this is Silver Fox. This is a, a new Snapter author, so something to note. And I just love this image of the stone kind of standing up from the earth, like a portal between the past and the future. There's something so iconic about that. And very much in fitting with the aesthetic, uh, you know, of mm-hmm. of this chapter, and you know, particularly what we learn uh, from Tool at the end of this section. And it's a neat way to get a glimpse of Tattersail uh, without really kind of just saying, "Here's Tattersail, and here's what she's doing." Yeah. Now we see Tattersail later in this section, right? And they say she's about five years old. Uh, in this epigraph, it says the girl is not yet old enough to talk. So I'm assuming that that means it is a younger version of Tattersail. Right, because she does speak in this chapter. Yeah, correct. So she's growing very quickly. So the other thing that it shows is that uh, there is a certain amount of Tattersail that is sort of carried with her, uh, you know, to the beyond, in that she still is an adept and can read the cards. Right. The Fatid, I think, is what it's called. Yes. Yeah. So... 
let's get into chapter 14. As Lorne and Toole approach the Jagu Barrow, she is beset with doubts. The Empress's plan to defeat Anamander Rake and the Jagu Tyrant by setting them against each other is, to put it bluntly, completely cracked. Lorne absolves herself neatly of responsibility for her actions and soldiers on, followed hotly by Captain Peran and Tak the Younger. Peran has a magic sword and he is dead set on using it to chop off Lorne's head. Tak the Younger is worried about the safety of his own head and he warns Peran that they are heading into a trap. Meanwhile, the Scoopy gang leaves Tarugistan with Crocus kicking and screaming and saying, are we there yet? <laughs> the stage is set for an epic dragon, wizard, undead, giant monster battle, and our band of misfits is going to have a front row seat. <laughs> I mean, it's getting set, right? Yeah, the stage is getting set, that's for sure. They are not, they are, <laughs> they are not afraid to overhype this battle. No, they are not. Anamanda Rake, Jagu Tyrant, both capable of quelling continents. It's on. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> so I think it's important to note at the beginning of chapter 14 here, we have another timestamp. Now, this is the fifth time in the book that we've had uh, a, a timestamp. And the first time that it has not not indicated a jump forward in time or a change in location. Hmm. Because the first two, the prologue, Chapter one, chapter two always kind of showed a progression of years. And then in chapter five, you know, it kind of showed that we were moving to Darugistan. Here, uh, we are not moving time or place, but we are given four different calendars, the time reckoning by four different calendars. Mm. So I think that, you know, this signifies that the plot convergence that's happening here. Oh. Um, Echoed in the calendar convergence. Exactly. So we have uh, chapter four, we have the 907th year of the third millennium, the season of Fandaray in the year of five tusks. So that's the Darugistan calendar. Uh, by Malazan reckoning, 1163rd year of Burns sleep. And by Talan Imas reckoning, the year of the gathering, Talan arise. So this is the first time we've had the Talan Imas calendar listed on the timestamp. And I think it's interesting to note, like, where each of these civilizations begins their calendar. So Darugistan, you know, they date their calendar from the time of the founding of the city. Uh, the Malazan dates it from something called Burns Sleep. We don't know precisely what that is yet. Um, but the Imas reckon time um, by their significant event is something called the Gathering, which has been mentioned a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And we know that the first gathering was a great meeting of all the Imas where the ritual of Talan was performed and they all turned into zombies, basically. So the fact that this year is also called the Year of Gathering uh, tells you that this is pretty significant. Something's probably going to happen. Well, if you've been alive for 300,000 years, and this one's remarkable, it's a big year. <laughs> that's, a, that's an indication. It's dragon, wizard, undead giant time. But listen, Lorne is depressed. Yes, I mean, wouldn't you be? So, you know, on a scale... <laughs> so the first, uh, the way this whole section opens, it says, As the days passed, Adjic Lorne felt a sharpness return to her mind, the exhaustion and depression fading away. The thought that she could allow herself to slip into carelessness so easy had left her shaken, and that was not a feeling with which she was familiar. I went back and had to reread, like, sections of chapter 10 and 11, 
And she sort of hints, you know, a few times that like she's a little, you know, shaken aback and and tired from some of these events. But I, I did not get like this sense of sort of like deep malaise that this section tends to imply, like she's coming up out of some deep fog. I'm not sure if that indicates that Steven Erickson is just fairly subtle in the way he indicates these things, or if there's something else that I missed. Well, I think this passage here is significant. Um, she could not permit any ambivalence to threaten the mission. So I, I think that mm-hmm. it's more just that her mission is so dangerous and the expectations placed on her by the empress are so exacting that for her to even be like she doesn't get to have an off day Mm -hmm. you know she doesn't get to be anything other than 100 percent you know um you know goes on to say in this she was lazine's arm and it was directed not of lauren's own accord but by the empress dujek and tashran had well reminded her of this truth you know, I, I actually underlined that passage to mm-hmm. illustrate another point, and I and I will later on. But I think it's more just a, a reflection of the expectations that are placed on her. So actually, I'll just go on and read the rest of this yeah, passage. Yeah, yeah. It says, mm-hmm. um, "Thus, she played no role in all of this, not as the woman named Lorne. How could she be held responsible for anything?" And mm. this is the first thing that I really highlighted Absolve in this chapter. Solve yourself of blame, Lorne. That's right. So she's walking around and she's starting to think about this plan that they have. And she's like, this plan is dumb. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a crazy plan. But then she she very quickly goes on. It almost seems like a very well-practiced um, thought pattern that she has, uh, this way of absolving herself of responsibility. And it just really kind of summarizes the problems that are inherent in a government that demands absolute obedience. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, individuals can just can do that. They can absolve themselves of responsibility for their actions. And as we find out, when people don't have to make moral decisions for themselves, bad stuff happens. Yeah, right. You're absolving all your decision making and pushing morality off on somebody else. If I did, if I'm the arm that, you know, wields the sword, well, it wasn't my will that wielded. It was somebody else's. So I'm not to blame. So in this section, Lauren is kind of going along and she's ruminating and stuff, but she kind of asks a couple of important questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we finally understand why anyone hasn't found this barrow before, especially since there's apparently a huge fucking stone marking the entrance and people have been looking for it for a thousand years. As Inspector Spacetime would say, it's not a where is the barrow. <laughs> It's, it's when, when it's is the, the barrow. barrow. <laughs> it's so funny. So yes, exactly. The barrow is hidden not only in space, but in time. But it's not a parallel time. So basically, the barrow was hidden in the past. And uh, the reason that Tool is able to get to it is because his Warren is the same flavor as the Jagu Warren. Um. We also find out why Tool was chosen to find the Barrow, and that gives us some information about how Mm. dangerous this Jagu uh, tyrant is. So he says, if instead of me, Logros had selected a Bonecaster, and if the tyrant was freed, that Bonecaster would become enslaved. A Jagu tyrant is dangerous alone. A Jagu tyrant with an Emas Bonecaster at its side is unstoppable. They would challenge the gods, and they would kill most of them. Bonecaster? Mm-hmm. 
I fear no monster who can be defeated by a hungry dog or a thirsty college freshman. <laughs> also, my nickname in college. <laughs> so, yes, that is the answer to the second question, which is, you know. Be- because he is not affiliated with anybody. Apparently, this Jagu Tyrant can, you know, if he gets his grip on you, not only can he force you to his will, but all your family, too. That's right. So... Because uh, Tool is alone and has no other connections, that's why he was sent on this mission. That's right. So that's the second question. The third question that Lauren kind of asks and is answered is, um, what the fuck are we thinking? Uh, Yeah, why? (laughs) Well, that's the question that we keep asking ourselves. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm the more they talk about how dangerous this tyrant is. So it turns out that the plan is that um, they're going to let this tyrant loose and hope that Anamanda Rake comes along to fight it. And that somehow the two will simultaneously kill each other. I mean, you know, and given, given the idea that Opan is in the game, right? (laughs) It seems like a really bad idea. I mean, on one hand, if you're trying to take over, you know, a territory and you're, you know, a thousand miles away from that territory, they're not a thousand miles away, but, you know, but they're, the Pale is still quite a distance away from Darujistan. Right. If you go right next to Darujistan and you unleash a holy hellish force upon, you know, uh, and it destroys the area. Ah, well. Yeah, you know, <laughs> nothing ventured, nothing gained. But it seems seems foolish. Yeah, I mean, this definitely seems like a what could go wrong yeah, yeah, every, scenario every, here. Everything could go wrong. <laughs> and Lorne also finally gets, Tool is very talky. He's very finely exposition-y here. As a mask go, he is quite the talkative one. But she gets the story of the T-Standee, who, mm-hmm. as far as we know, what we know of them so far is they're, you know, kind of... The Tist-Andy. <laughs> is that how it's said? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Really? Tist? Yeah. It sounds too much like tits. I'm not going to be able to keep a straight face. <laughs> I'm going to have to... <laughs> I got somebody who gave me a, um, a pronunciation guide. Mm. Uh, let's see. Heist Andy. So not Tits Andy. It's not Tits Andy. That was my nickname in college. <laughs> <laughs> not until later in college. Tyst Andy. Tyst Andy. Okay, I can do that. Tyst Andy. So it was uh, Pete Samhammer who wrote us and gave us sort of a breakdown of the pronunciations, which I very much appreciate. And we got um, Tyst Andy. Uh, Kerald Galane, Jag Hoot, not a silent T, Talan Emass. He he reminded me the Canadians like their flat A's. Talan Emass, Lacine Ganos Paran, not Paran, Kalam. All right, so I just have oh, to tattled. remember Canadian. Canadian flat A's. Okay, I will do my best. I'm sure that was a completely worthwhile detour from what we were talking about. Absolutely, we were talking about the Tyst Andy. The Tyst Andy. All right, so here's the story of the Tyst Andy. So, once upon a time, there was darkness, 
and she was lonely, so light came along. But Darkness's children, the Thai standee, were like, what the fuck is this shit? And Darkness was like, you don't get to use that tone with me. And they were like, <laughs> well, we're going to embrace the Starvold, Demolane Warren. And she was all like, fine, but don't you show your face around the Warren of Coral Galane ever again. And they were like, fine. And God, teenagers are really impossible. <laughs> so does this mean that Animander Rake is like, like Darkness's son? Yes. That's Do- why they call him the son of darkness. The son of darkness. <laughs> So he's like the Prince of Darkness? So is this like what could happen if we don't rein in Ozzy Osbourne? (laughs) Oh my God. I just got an image of Ozzy Osbourne with playing his bone caster. (laughs) We got to do something about that guy. I know. I'm the fucking so that's of the darkness. story of the Tyson. Do you have any more to say about? You're not going to let tool. some stupid tyrant out of my barrow. I wish I had a good. I, <laughs> I wish, wish I had thought had far Ozzy. enough in advance to practice an Ozzy Osbourne accent, but <laughs> but it's not. You know, listen, this is not a professional operation. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> you get what you get. Her. <laughs> the fucking Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Okay, but well, I'm not. You know, every time I see him from now on, it's going to be with you know. It's better than Hulk feet sticking Hogan out of his mouth. In my head as a <laughs> who's who's Hulk Hogan in your head? You oh. you made Hulk Hogan into who? Into Animander Ray. Oh, I did. Yes. During the Battle of Bailey, like, D of America. <laughs> Animander Ray is going to win. <laughs> You gotta eat your vitamins. Practice the Warren of Starvald Demolane. Stop me, please. Please stop. So Lauren and Tool make it to the Barrow, and as there, as she is waiting, Lauren is kind of poking around, and she finds the tip of a spear point, and she realizes that this, what she's finding, kind of confirms for her that what Tool has said about being. Uh, one of her ancestors is true that the that humans did inherit a world they did come from the emas and she realizes that um empire was a part of them it's a legacy in their bones and she kind of goes on this whole rumination about you know what does that mean for the human race um is being an empire inevitable and why do we act as though it is and and war and, and war, right. And it, it just really encapsulates what I see as the central theme of this book, and it sets the stage for a lot of the questions that the book is going to explore. You know, I feel like in the in the Emas, Lorne sees humanity's past and their future. Um, the fact that the humans came from the Emas, and they, like, inherited this need to conquer and to organize and to, the, and to build. You know, and what does that mean for, for their future? And what is war good for? <laughs> I tapped into my Warren of Edwin star. <laughs> and so she goes on to kind of contrast humanity and the Imas with the Jag with the Jagoot. And she realizes that the Jagoot would never have started this war because she realizes that they've turned their back on on empires. You know, that was kind of their main characteristic. 
but also that the the Jagut didn't just turn their backs on the negative aspects of society, war and slavery, etc., but they also turned their backs on the good aspects as well community and fellowship and charity and all of that fashion and living and so food. the other the other question i think that the book really addresses is are these are only two options you know can mm. you have the good aspects of society without the bad and uh, steven erickson kind of is now looking at you can kind of see him examining all of these different types of societies what are the positive what are the negatives um and so it's this idea that that we're our own worst enemy. And I really love this passage here. She's um, She says, Lazine, I know why we fear this Jagut tyrant, because he became human. He became like us. He enslaved, he destroyed, and he did it better than we could. She lowered her head into her hands. That's why we fear. So this idea that we're our own worst enemy and that what we really fear most is our own nature. Um, and I love this passage here. She's she has some tears and um, she says such tears had been shed before and would be again by others like her and yet unlike her and the winds would dry them all. Yeah. I, I noted that section as well, particularly the last line, you know, she's not the first They're by no means the first to go through all these struggles. She's by no means the first to note it. You know, the, the revelation that she's had is significant, but it's not as though it means a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. Millions of people have had the same realization, and it hasn't stopped anything from happening. You know, this is what she's sort of, you know, thinking. And here it's fairly obvious that she's, you know, in the throes of of a moral quandary uh, and, you know, a pretty dark place. Where it wasn't necessarily clear to me leading up to this that she was really in a super dark place. Now it's pretty obvious. Well, and Stephen Erickson has talked in interviews about deliberately subverting fantasy tropes. And what he does here is so subtle. I really love it. You know, how in this world, there's no good government versus evil government. You know, it's not it's not a dichotomy here. This is not really a light versus dark kind of story. It's mm. kind of dark versus a different kind of dark. You know, um, there's no perfect system. It's just, you've got this kind of complicated mess of imperfect people just doing their best to operate in the society that they happen to be in, yeah. you know, and their common thread is that all of these characters are just ground down by, by apathy, by feelings of powerlessness. And they have so much in common with each other, but they can't even see it. You know, the fact that Lorne and Relic Nam having ha, have basically had the same internal monologue about losing agency over their lives yeah, on complete opposite ends of this political divide though. So one thing I realized about this book is just that everyone in it is fucking miserable except for Krupp. Yeah. Right. Who also happens to be the only person that we have seen deliberately eschew power. Like, yeah, true. Deliberately kind of live beneath his power means Mm -hmm. and do everything he can to not be in power over anyone else. So we kind of, that kind of comes back around to the other theme that we've talked about a lot in this book, you know, about the power that comes when you don't seek power. You know, you talk about the idea of like, there's no right government, wrong government. You know, we've, we've really gotten a chance to sort of see the empire, sort of two versions of the empire, you know, the old emperor and endless and And we've gotten a chance to see a little bit about sort of the, the government in Daruzistan. And, you know, by those standards, it seems like the government in Daruzistan 
is the is the more benign option. Oh, sure. I mean, and, yeah. And it, and it certainly is, you know, from this perspective that she's taking at this point. But having said that, we see that, you know, it, it it's sort of kept in check by assassins and, mm-hmm. you know, and... It's not, a, but it's not as though it's a benign government. Right. It's just not a warmongering government. Right. That that's it. That's right. the the distinction. You know, um, that they have eschewed you know despots and that they've you know actively taken a role to you know to to get rid of despots. They have a somewhat representative government, but but even that is they're just backstabbing each other mm-hmm. and you know so it's. Just a different type of government, not a better <laughs> government. Because the sad truth is that I'm sure there's a lot of people and places, and we don't really see this. Or there's an argument I'm sure somebody would Hold make. for Chad to go on a long uh, political rant. There'd be people who would have to argue the empire's point. It's not over yet. You know, all these things, and they talk about, you know, what No, he's still talking. Areas that they've conquered. I'm sure that, you know, okay, I think somebody he's who's going to make that argument. But they're still the evil. I mean, they're the There's evil empire. There's clearly the bad for guy, sure. right? They're like, bad. Like, I mean, yeah, we're not. I mean, we got 13 year olds in the army. Come on yeah, now. We're not going down that road. But <laughs> nobody's trying to justify. But I just I like that Erickson has moved away from like the good versus bad. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot, just a lot more subtlety uh, in this story, and I I like and appreciate yeah. that. Whew! That was exhausting. <laughs> Whew! <laughs> So we just address our other characters in chapter 14 really quickly. They don't do a whole lot, but the, the Scooby gang is heading out of Darugistan. Crocus is like, oh, my God, my parents are the worst. Yeah, why, why did you drag me out here? There's nothing cool to do. It's hot. There's no Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, right? And we also have Sorry kind of following the gang. I just want to say that I love how Steven Erickson has the um, the hooker of a heart of gold uh, trope in here, but it's like gender flipped. Oh, at, yeah. Mar- yeah. With in Marilio. Yeah. I-, I just think that's really cool. And the gender roles in general, I think it's really neat how, you know, you've got this um, this world where you have magic and that is really is an equalizer. So you have, can you have women who are very powerful and women serving in the military and that, and that kind of thing. I think it's, it's just neat, kind of neat how gender roles are, are addressed here. You know, we have Paran who is really eager to chop off Lauren's head and there's not like a, oh, I can't chop off her head. She's a woman. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, she's like a really dangerous enemy. This is sounding kind of not how I meant it to come out, but... (laughs) (laughs) My only observation was that Marilio is the Marina Baccarin of uh, of the group. That's it. The hooker with the heart of gold. Yeah. Yep. She's the, is it a Nara from, yep. right, from Firefly? Good memory. It's been a long time since we watched Firefly. It's been a long time since anyone's watched Firefly. That's not true. No? Okay. Plenty of people watch Firefly hmm. on the regular. That makes me feel good. So... I my note was sort of Marilio's side. It's a wonder to see the man sober. Speaking of call, uh, but he had insisted upon accompanying them, uh, or that he had insisted in accompanying them, bordered on miraculous, which agreed, perhaps motivated by Opon. Who knows? The, here's the problem with having a a piece on the chessboard like Opon, this sort of god that you know can manipulate everything through chance is. 
Now you see Opan everywhere. The tiniest little right. thing. Is it Opan's influence? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. It's it's a tough thing to sort of build into your story and do it convincingly. Would be super handy in a D and D campaign, though, wouldn't it? When you just need something hint, to happen. Hint. There was one time we were having we have this D and D campaign, and the Duke is our DM, and I really wanted something to happen, and I just kept trying. I really wanted to read these <laughs> like ancient runes that there's no way my character could have read, but maybe there was like a one percent chance, and I just kept being like, "Let me try. I'm just roll it. Let me just roll one more time." And finally, you were like, "Fine, you can read the." Run. <laughs> no, no, what happened? See if we had Oban. No, Oh, maybe no. I got a good roll. No, what ha- yeah, what happened was I told you, I gave you like a one in a 1% chance and you rolled double zeros. Like, and I was like, <laughs> and I didn't want to give you that because again, you really should not have been able to do it. <laughs> and I was like, fine, I'll give you a chance. I'll give you like a one in a hundred chance. Did it and you did it and, and I, I teleported and it was awesome. <laughs> okay, sorry, we are getting really that's very off topic. <laughs> but see, it was Opon, <laughs> so it's not off track. So th- there were a couple of things that we hadn't mentioned yet. So the first is I forgot to mention this when we were talking about uh, Lorne, but one of the things I noticed is that Lorne noticed. She said faintly from above came the cry of ravens. She lifted her head and gazed at the specks wheeling high over them. They'd been with them for days. Was that unusual? So the ravens, I'm assuming these are the great ravens. If if it's a group of ravens that have mm-hmm. been following her, mm-hmm. you know, if you put a if you put a great raven raven on the mantelpiece in Act One, mm-hmm. then Lorne's going to find it in Chapter 14. So it seems to me that these are either Animander, you know, people going to report back to Animander Rake mm-hmm. most likely, or potentially Caladan Brood, but more likely Animander Rake. So hence that Animanda Rake has some inkling of where they are and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Or will soon. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up is we had some uh, a section with Tok and Paran. Yes. Paran. So in this little, you know, section that we have with them in this chapter uh, is just really Tok and Paran running around and Tok gets a premonition of something that's about to happen, but it doesn't actually happen until the next chapter. But there's a couple of notes that I wanted to, to uh, make. So first, uh, power draws power, Tok said. He was talking uh, with Paran, and he scratched again at his scar, and the motion triggered yet another flash of light in his head, but it was changing. Mm-hmm. At times, he thought he could almost see images or scenes within the light. Mm-hmm. Damn seven city superstitions anyway, he growled under his breath. So it seems like he's having some sort of weird, like, second sight triggered by the scar, but we don't really understand Mm -hmm. what that is or why. And what I thought was a telling line, but again, I don't know what it's telling, is damn seven city superstitions. Well, Mm -hmm. what seven city superstitions? Whatever superstition it is, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Is it that the loss of an eye creates second sight? Oh, I like that. You know, lose the eye, gain some deeper wisdom. Ooh. You know, that would seem to make sense, right? Later, uh, we get this one. Tok rubbed his scar again and almost fell from the saddle as an image, clear and precise, burgeoned in his head. He saw a small shape moving so fast as to be but a blur. Horses screamed and a massive tear opened in the air. Captain, we're heading into an ambush. Paran's head snapped around. His eyes glittered. 
then prepare yourself. <laughs> so Tak is right in that he is getting some sort of second sight. They are headed into an ambush. And Peron is a tool. <laughs> then prepare yourself. But they'll kill us. Then prepare to die. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not convinced yet that Peran is deserving of his protagonist role. I think that's on purpose. I, I mean, I think he's exactly who you would expect, kind of a a nobleman's son turned assassin trainee tool of the empire turned, hey, maybe I want to be my own guy for a little bit. That's exactly how you would expect him to be. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not, you yeah. Know? I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. I absolutely agree. He, I mean, he has all the world-weary wisdom of a nobleman's son. Exactly. <laughs> You know, <laughs> who finally got laid for the first time and then his girlfriend got burned to a crisp. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, sleeping with fever, sweaty, 200 year old women. <laughs> I mean, consent there was dubious is all I'm saying. <laughs> chapter 15. <laughs> In chapter 15. There ain't no party like a magic sword party, because a magic sword party really sucks. (laughs) Quick Ben's trap for Hairlock almost gets frogged when Peran and Tak the Younger stumble onto it. Hairlock gets taken out by a couple of hounds who get taken out by Animander Rake and sent to the worst magic sword party ever. (laughs) Animander kicks Shadow Throne and Cotillion out of Darugistan. Peran tries to save the hounds from an eternity of pulling a skeleton wagon with the help of Boy Opan. Freed from her possession, Sari realizes that she's not an Itko Khan anymore, and Call sends Crocus to take her to his uncle, Mamo. That's it. A lot of stuff happens. I mean, this is, this is the best chapter. A lot of stuff happens. So we begin with Quick Ben, and he is sitting there with um, Trot. Yes. Uh, the bar guest. Yes. Uh, because Kalam is not quite ready, not ready for gallivanting about, so he's still in recovery. And he's sitting there doing one of his rituals, trying to to uh, figure out what's up with Harlock. He closes his eyes then, reaching into his warren, before him an image form that made him jerk with surprise. What, he whispered, is Harlock doing on the Rivy Plain? So I went back and read the section with Quick Ben and Harlock the last time they met where they met sort of in the uh, in the Warren of Chaos and the Spar of Time. I don't know where it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Quick Ben said, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Go follow Tashrin. And then he kicked him and jumped out mm-hmm. of the Warrens, right? So then the next time Quick Ben sees him, he does not appear to be following Tashrin. No, he definitely so, did not do that. So one of two things. So this is either an indication that Tayshren is somehow involved in Lacine's plans in the Gadroby Hills, or that Quick Ben's you know, orders to to Hairlock don't mean shit. I think it's the second one. I think so too. I just don't. Tayshren has, despite his magical power, just does not strike me as being the guy with his hand in everything. He like. You know, he he just doesn't seem to have that level of ambition 
despite his obvious magical prowess. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with your assertion there. So Hairlock doesn't nearly have the level of control, or I'm sorry, Quick Ben doesn't nearly have the level of control over Hairlock as he thinks he does. Well, as evidenced by, you know, what happens next. Correct, yeah. Which is that Paran happens upon Hairlock, or Hairlock jumps out at Paran. Yeah, so we so we ended the section talking about there's going to be an ambush, and we start back after the section with Quick Ben. We come back to Tok and Paran, and I have this quote, Tok the Younger was his friend, perhaps the only friend he had. If things get too hot, he said, pull out, Tok. Ride for Darujistan. Fine, Whiskey Jack. The scout nodded. If I go down, I heard you, Captain. I, I'll leave. Oh, yeah. You I will to, abandon you. You ain't got to tell me twice. No problem. <laughs> I sort of feel like Peran's perception of talk is not quite as reciprocal as Peran <laughs> thinks it is. I mean, I think talk likes him okay. He's fine. It's like if I, I mean, he's following him out here on what he believes is potentially a suicide mission. Right, yeah. So there must be some degree of affection there. Right. Or he just really had to get out of pale. But he ends up getting thrown into a dark portal. There's that, and Sad. disappears. Disappears, and we don't know what happens to him. Hairlock does end up ambushing them. Tok gets thrown into a dark portal. Paran's like, I'm going to chop you up. Hairlock's, Hairlock's like, like, that. <laughs> that's sort of going to do shit on me, man. Quick Ben is like, what the fuck, Paran? What are you doing? Yeah. Quick Ben's watching the whole thing. Going, oh my God, he's alive. Oh my God, he's not alive for long. <laughs> so Quick Ben sends a mental message to sorry slash cotillion. I know who you are. Enlists their help, um, getting Shadow Throne to send the hounds. And he does. Drama, drama. So much drama. <laughs> so of course the... Hounds of Shadow begin to approach, and Hairlock, who is in the middle of just, again, threatening Paran for no reason. Oh, a quick death is not good enough for you, <laughs> <Right>. Paran. <laughs> you who have done top, nothing <laughs> to me. I barely know you. I'll show you true hatred. Sorry, it just reminds me of, like, our older children with our younger children sometimes like, yeah let us walk into the room and they're like Ugh. yeah <laughs> hi i brought you a cup of water smash get that shit out of my face <laughs> you what are you doing in here <laughs> for no reason no reason no reason at all that's it hairlock is everybody's teenage older teenage sibling <laughs> at once yeah <laughs> So Hairlock, you know, hears the hounds and he's like, hmm, I could kill you quickly, but that's not good enough for you. I want to enjoy it, so I'm going to run away. But then at that moment, you know, before he jumps back into the tear in time and space, Quick Ben severs the connection that allows, it, it doesn't close the void or it doesn't close the rent. Correct. It essentially just makes Hairlock immobile. It yes. cuts his puppet strings. It literally cuts the puppet strings. The puppet no longer has any ability to move. Yes. Uh, so when the shadow hounds arrive, they eat his ass up. They do. So presumably Hairlock's dead. Presumably. The hounds then turn on Paran, and yeah. he's all... Whatever, come at me, bro. <laughs> Thankfully for him. Somebody else should. At up. this point, 
The ground buckles, and it feels as though an enormous hand is pressing down on everyone, and everybody's hair stands up on the end, and cracks appear in the, and it's Anamander Rake. Even the grass is trying to get away from him. I mean, it's pretty bad donkey. It's bad donkey. Anamander Rake is, he's all that. And he, he tells the hounds to get the fuck out, and they, and they do, basically, uh, after he kills two of them with his sword. Mm-hmm. And then he has a conversation with Paran and is basically like, you're cool. You know, as mortals go, See you around. you're not too shabby. Get rid of that sword if your luck ever turns. But but here again, like, so the exchange with Paran and Andamanda Rake, once again, Paran is served by his, like, callous attitude. Right. Because uh, I forget pre- precisely what the conversation was. But Peron's like, I don't know, never works for me when I do that anyway. Oh, no. Okay, so here's what happens. So Animator fights the hounds. He kills two of them in like two seconds. The blood literally boils off of his blade. Like he doesn't even need to have a <laughs> handkerchief to clean his sword. Okay. And the hounds are dead for realsies, not like I'm going on to the land of the dead or whatever. They're, mm-hmm. they're like captured in his sword now. Okay. And Shadow Throne shows up. And Animator Rake quickly convinces him that he needs to withdraw completely from Darugistan, like forcibly attack Cotillion, get your ass out of here. And uh, Shadow Throne then reveals that Paran is an agent of Opon. And uh, Rake like looks at him and Paran is just like, shrug emoticon. Like, yeah. I mean, he's just like, wow, <laughs> okay. Hmm. And he's just so like, it's actually pretty funny. He's just so casual. He's like, well, what are you going to do? And Rake then examines him and says, okay, you're not being controlled by Opon. Mm-hmm. There's no more influence on you. It's just your sword. But Paran actually has a really neat character moment here where he he takes responsibility for his own actions. Like, despite being physically resurrected and then partially controlled by a god, and he kind of thinks about that, but he's like, but he actually says, but you know what? I'm the one who did those things. Mm. And he takes responsibility for them. And it's a neat contrast with Lorne, who spends most of her point of view chapters convincing herself that nothing is her fault and that she doesn't have any choice. So Paran decides, like, he's going to finish what he started, and he is going to go after Lorne, but he also doesn't kid himself that that's going to fix what's wrong with him. So no. I, it's, mm. a, it's a, for me, I really liked it. It's a neat moment of growth for this character. And then he gets transported into a magic sword. Inside of a magic sword. He's like, I know that these, you know, nigh impossible to kill hounds uh, were destroyed with this magical sword and their blood is bubbling, even though the wound wasn't deep enough to actually kill the one. Um, but I know. Let me stick my hand in it. <laughs> so as soon as he touches the hound's blood, he's transported to the warren that's contained inside of the sword. So we learned earlier that uh, Animander Rake's sword, Dragnapur, it enslaves people. It doesn't make them... Animander's slaves, they become the slaves of darkness. And basically, when you become a slave of darkness, you have one job, and it's to be chained to this wagon full of skeletons and just drag it around forever. Forever. To the end of time. I mean, <laughs> this I mean, this is badass. Like it, it's pretty metal. This it's pretty metal. I mean, it, it's Prince of Darkness worthy. It, it really is. 
chained to a giant wagon. <laughs> Full of skeletons. It's pretty bad donkey. It's definitely bad donkey. I liked, I didn't catch it the first time I read it, but they're going through and they're giving, dis, you know, like slowly kind of giving pieces of description mm-hmm. of the actual wagon. And he's like, the walls of the wagon were 20 feet high, you know? And I was like, <laughs> it's like damn. <laughs> it was... 12 span across the cross beam, you know, and I'm like, my God, it's a big tree. So he goes in there and he has this conversation with the guy who, who appears, seems to be driving the wagon, right? How Now, in this magical, you know, world, how do you get to be the guy driving the wagon? Is he driving it? I thought he was chained next to it. Oh, I, I got the impression that he was... I got the impression he'd been there longer than anybody else. Well, he's been there a while, obviously. Yeah. So he was like... One of the first people Anna Ray killed. I feel like that dude's going to come back around somehow. Paran's like, what's your name? And the guy's like, dude, I'm chained to a wagon. Let me keep my dignity. <laughs> Rude. Hello. You can't just ask someone what their name is. It's not how it works, earthling. <laughs> and he takes sympathy on the hounds. Yeah, Paran kind of inexplicably... Again, like when Gear attacked him and was going to kill him, and he, you know, used his sword to wound him, and then he inexplicably felt really bad about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, again, really wants to help these hounds, even though they keep on attacking him every time they see him. And even in this time, when they see him, they attack him. (laughs) They attack him every single time. Every single time, and they attack. They attacked him in this time, and he's like, (laughs) you know, but deep down- so cute. Deep down, they're good people. Oh, puppies. I mean, come on, puppies. Fuck puppies. <laughs> <laughs> Did not just say fuck puppies. But yeah, yeah, I don't understand his, you know, his sort of soft spot for these things that will eat him at any, at any, <laughs> any chance. But more to the point, like he's like, oh, this is, this fate is just, it's, it's not, you know, this is the worst thing that could happen. I have to free them, but fuck everybody else who's here. Right. <laughs> Well, I think it even addresses that. He kind of is like, I could tell that if I tried to free everyone here, like, bad shit would happen. Like, this is a pretty touch-and-go situation. It really, to me, really reads like a D&D adventure uh, oh, scene. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I examined the chains for weaknesses. Yeah, I tried I this out. You know, I'm just going to try all my uh-huh. different artifacts and yeah. see if anything happens. And he ends up calling out Opon, you know, kind of grabbing the sword and being like, get out here, you bastard. Yeah. And uh, Opon shows up. And he wrestles him to the ground. He wrestles him to the ground and is inexplicably, he rolls a natural 20 mm-hmm. and he finds himself <laughs> able to wrestle up this god to the ground and hold him in front of the, the portal of darkness and the, the hounds leap into the portal and hopefully their chains And disappear. who knows where the hell they went. And who knows where the hell they went. Yeah. But maybe it's better than being chained to a giant wagon. But then again, also Peron sort of inexplicably ends up back in the plains. Even though yeah, he, he gets didn't out get and then sucked. he goes, damn, I should have asked for my girlfriend back. I know. Right? <laughs> or talk, at least. Or my best friend and my girlfriend. My best friend and my girlfriend. But I saved these dogs. I've known these people for two whole weeks. <laughs> so, it, on the other side of the barrow... Yeah, we there's a whole our, other other part of the chapter we haven't even talked about yet. We have our intrepid 
Darudistanis, and we know that they are the Scooby Gang. Yeah, the Scooby Gang who are trying to approach the Barrow, uh, where Lorne and the uh, Talon and Mass are, and they stumble upon Lorne. They again very Dungeons and Dragons like, mm-hmm. like they both round they both round a hill and fail their surprise rolls, and they're they're both surprised. Ah ah. You know, and they're 30 feet away from each other. And Lauren rolls first for initiative. Lauren gets the first initiative. And like the murder hobo that she is, <laughs> forgets that you can talk to people and says, <laughs> I don't know you. You must die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she does. She just starts whacking Inexplicably, <laughs> she's like, party of four, I'm by myself. Check. <laughs> they gots to die. <laughs> For no reason. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the part that I was like, okay, you know? And it gets weirder to me. So they have their fight, you know. Again, <clears throat> this is the Scooby gang. This, the, Unlike everybody else, you know, in this book, they aren't really D&D characters, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, you know, she whips their asses like <laughs> in one round there's four of them like you know Krupp falls off his horse and hits his head you know she knocks Marilio out with the flat of her blade she damn near kills call and then she's got crocus at sword point and he's like we didn't do anything to you we'll just go our own way <laughs> And in a second inexplicable move, she's like, okay. Well, I I feel like the second move was more explicable. Is that a word? Sure, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I can understand that because I think it's the kind of thing where, and and if you read her thought process, she's halfway through this fight and she's like, oh shit, what am I doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why am I I attacking these people? Yeah, these people. And so when it's like, then she's faced with this teenage boy who's like, hey, she's like, Oh, okay. Okay, I'm not going to kill you unarmed, teenage yeah, yeah, boy, yeah. Or, you know. Yeah. It actually, I mean, if you think about it, this scene happens in like every sword and sandal movie you've ever mm-hmm. seen, like somebody, you know, like somebody sneaks up and it's it's invariably it's like a it's like a there's like a lake and there's mm-hmm. like a woman swimming and she's naked and someone's like, aha. And then mm-hmm. they turn around and then somebody's, you know, somebody's hits them in the head with a rock, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like, what did you do? But, oh, but they're later, they're best of friends. Right. Um, so I, I found it a little bit weird, but not so weird that it's, I'm really gonna make a big deal out of it. Right. Well, I mean, she's also, when you look at her, her entire trip across the plains from pale, she's been like attacked. That's true. Yeah. And this, yeah, this is the first time she would really have had a chance to sort of encounter civilians, right. you know. Uh, and she didn't. She didn't do well with it. Right. She, she's been in the in the bush for too long. <laughs> she needs some R and R. So they do end up going their separate ways. Half of the Scooby Gang is now unconscious and or bleeding out, uh, but the Crathy Crocus manages to patch up, call. And they are, um, they're being snuck up on by Cotillion, mm-hmm. who is, you know, finds them and he's out, is going to finally kill Crocus, is sneaking up with a garrote, and then all of a sudden, you know, Anamander Rake. 300 leagues away, yeah. yeah. 
convinces Shadow Throne to yank him out. And here we have the Fisher Girl from EcoCon standing there with a garrote in her hands. We're going, where am I? Yeah. I don't think I'm in Kansas anymore. <laughs> this is not the EcoCon that I remember. But of course, Crocus recognizes her and knows that she is an assassin. So right. it's not, you know, she doesn't know that he knows she's an assassin. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. So Call convinces Crocus to take her back to the city because he can tell, obviously, this is some supernatural, probably important shit going down, and uh, Mamo needs to know about it. Yep. End scene. Chapter 16. In chapter 16, Lorne and Tool head into the barrow, but Tool begins to get cold feet. Crocus gives Sari a new name on the ride back to Jerugistan, and Paran meets baby Tattersail, weird, and call the exiled noble. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that part was good. So chapter 16, I want to read this epigraph as well. It says, Decembre knows the sorrow in our souls. He walks at the side of each mortal, a vessel of regret on the fires of vengeance. Decembre knows the sorrows and would now share them with us all. So we've seen Decembre, this name mentioned a couple of times. So I just mm -hmm. want to keep highlighting that. He, um, we learned in earlier chapters that he uh, was taken as Hood, the god of death's sort of knight, sort of champion, but that he betrayed him and left his service. And yeah. now he's sort of kind of praised and worshipped in his own right. Or at least his name is sort of used in that way. Yeah, and there's I know that there's something to do with um, Dasim Altor making a deal with Hood at some point and then betraying it, which precedes all of this. I don't know how that's tied into Decembre, uh, Decembre, however, however you pronounce it. Um, but it either, either there's a connection there or Hood is always getting ripped off. He's all, <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like a good guy to work for. <laughs> no, I mean, if you had to choose you know, if a you patron get, god to be the knight of. Yeah, if you get drafted by Hood, you're going to try to find a way to get traded. <laughs> So Lorne and Tool are heading into the barrow, and now all of a sudden it's Tool who's like, oh, this is a really bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you're like undead, literally almost unkillable companion is like, I don't know. Who also has shown no emotion for exactly. 300,000 years. <laughs> Maybe you got to rethink your choices. If he starts going, I don't know, man, it's not cool. <laughs> he says, I know the name of this tyrant and we don't want him out there. This is really bad idea. <laughs> so then, uh, so before they, you know, go through and sort of do their foul deed, you know, and with tool with his, I don't know if we should do this. He says, you know, I've really been thinking it through. And, uh, uh, when this is all over, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave. Uh, you could come with me. He offers Lorne to like, hey, you know. Let's just Thelma and Louise it. You could, yeah, exactly. You could just come with me and go where? <laughs> You're a 300,000-year-old skeleton. <laughs> it's the worst buddy cop movie ever. <laughs> 
She's going to grow old waiting for him to answer any question, <laughs> figure anything out. Where are they going to go? Not going to spring break together. <laughs> He's going to find answers. Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> He's so out of touch with human reality to under to not realize how absurd a question that is. And Lauren, even with everything, you know, that she's going through and con and she because she's right there with him. Like this mm -hmm. is this is terrible. I don't know why we're doing this. You know, I can't believe I'm such you know, if it was anybody other than Tool, she might actually have to think about mm -hmm. taking the opportunity. But she's like she doesn't even it doesn't like even entertain literally it. Literally a skeleton. She's like, let's let's just go on and do what we came here for. <laughs> Anybody else, you know, showed up. If the old emperor showed up and was like, I have a way out of here, she'd have been like, oh, you know, let's talk about it. I just that that struck me as weird. That was funny. Where are you gonna go? <laughs> Meanwhile, Crocus and Sari are having a very awkward and adolescent ride. Yeah. Back to Darugistan. In case you forgot how much of a child Crocus is. <laughs> like, your name is stupid. I don't have a girlfriend. Get your tits off my back. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is pretty much what happened. Right? It's like, uh, why, don't you, why don't you find a name for me? How about I name you after my current girlfriend? I don't have a girlfriend. So the only name I could think of is Absalom, but you can't have that name. Yeah. No, I want it. No, you can't. You can't have it. No. And but that's what happens. That's what happens. Like, hey, man, if you are into her, don't let her out of your sight. Peron let Tattersail out of his sight, and now she's a five-year-old girl. <laughs> that's what happens in this universe. You've got to take your chances. You've got to put a ring on it right away. Now, listen... Who are his options right now? <laughs> his, you know, like, Crocus has Shalice, the Darl Maiden, mm -hmm. who is not going to have anything to fucking do with him. Mm -hmm. Or, or sorry, who any minute now is going to have a demonic assassin snap back into her brain and stab him in the belly. <laughs> it's not good choices. These are his options right now. Uh. So Marilio and Krupp wake up, and they're like, you sent him where? What? what? That's crazy. Rah, let's get all these donkeys. And they kind of start trotting yeah, off yeah. on the donkeys. So the rest of the, the storyline is with Peron. So after, yes. after I mean, and his freaking storyline in this section is balls out insane. It's pretty insane. Everything that, ha like, he takes 15 steps and, like, something otherworldly happens. That's like. Right. <laughs> Whoa, there's a killer puppet. Oh, now there's the hounds of hell. Now it's the son of darkness. Now I'm inside a sword. <laughs> oh, wait, there's my ex-girlfriend in the body of a five-year-old. Um, yeah, I'm in the middle of a stampede. <laughs> I'm being attacked by five people for no reason. Like, every, like it is insane what happens to him in three, really in two chapters, yeah. you know? My goodness, so... He's, you know, again, he's like, whew, glad I survived being inside of that sword. <laughs> what? There's a, you know, a half a million bison charging at me. Oh, and if that's not bad enough, f apparently from the bison herd while they're stampeding, these warriors leap out and attack him. 
and you know he he fights them off um but what he doesn't realize you know sort of in the melee that's going on is that you know he gets hit a bunch of times but by these lances that people are throwing but what he doesn't realize is happening is that the lances are actually shattering when they hit him and the points are not actually penetrating him i read it as they kind of like landed all around him like i thought he had three that were like actually like connected to the sword yeah but but they also kind of like landed all around him like just barely missing him and his you know yeah yeah none of his stuff was harmed you Mm -hmm. know the the horse was behind him Mm -hmm. um and behind that was a wall of horse-shaped lances yeah, <laughs> like exactly. sticking in the wall. Like straight out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> like they made a piran and horse silhouette on the <laughs> on all the bison behind them. But either way, the lances, you know, don't do anything to mm-hmm. him. Um, you know, and they're all sort of dumbfounded. And mm-hmm. from this, you know, moment, uh, this old lady steps forward and brings forth, she's old and wise, but she brings forth the wisest of them all. <laughs> the five-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Who has, the, here who has the wisdom of a child. And the child steps forward, and of course it's Tattersail. Right. But in that moment, he has this, you know, she asks him, because he doesn't realize it's Tattersail yet, says, the Rivi are the enemy of the Malazan. We know you are from Malaz, but do you declare yourself to be with Malaz? And he says, I'm with no one. I'm my girlfriend burnt up in a fire. I'm currently unattached. <laughs> but no, he says, I'm I'm with me. I, I don't want to be anybody's enemy. I'm not tr- I'm not here trying to make enemies. And then that's just something that he kind of says. I mean, it's not that it's untrue, but he just sort of says it, but then he doesn't he sort of realizes after this is all over and he realizes it's no, it's Tattersale. He realizes after this is all over that like for the first time ever he actually f- thinks that's true. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Anamanda Rake said, your Opan doesn't have a hold on you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, the sword is magical. Now mm-hmm. we're starting to get a sense, too, of, of in what way the sword is magical. Mm-hmm. Um, but he at least believes that Opan is not involved. Mm-hmm. I think that's bullshit, Evidenced by the fact that every time he takes 15 steps, something insane happens to him. Right. But he thinks that he's free of Opon. He's free of the Malazans because they think he's dead. Mm-hmm. He's free of Lorne because she thinks he's dead. Mm-hmm. But again, he's not free of Lorne because inside he's still on this vengeance kick. Right. But he thinks he's free of Lorne. Um, so he feels for the first time sort of like a free agent and he feels some sense of individual agency. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, and that his actions are his own. Right. So that was a fairly interesting you know, character moment, I thought. Yeah. Absolutely. And then to top off the evening, he runs into Call. Mm-hmm. Who apparently never heard any of this. <laughs> Call, who has kind of left there bleeding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get the sense that he's, he sent everyone off and he's just yeah. kind of, but he is just kind of, lying there until he can manage to scramble back up onto the remaining donkey. Which is a terrible, ter- like, I cannot imagine doing that. He's like, hey, I know we're out here with wild animals and there's a war going on. Um, I'm aware that the scent of my blood is surrounds me. Um, <laughs> ah, you guys go ahead. <laughs> you know, like, 
I can't run away if anything comes, but I'll just lay here for the wolves and the bear to find me. I mean, we don't know what kind of animals um, are out here, but presumably there's some kind of predators out there. <laughs> but I love the call in Paran show. Oh yeah, that was that was that was a good conversation. That was some of the best um, dialogue I think in the book so far. Mm-hmm. The two of them, yeah. So they both just kind of lay it all out there to each other. Uh, hey, you know, I'm an ex-Malazan uh, officer slash secret claw operative. Who deserted. And I'm defecting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we knew all that about Paran, but but Call sort of gives us his backstory, too. Right. And we had some hints, but we didn't really know right. what his backstory was. So we finally get from him, you know, what had happened and how he you know, lost his estate. And it was kind of kind of what we thought it was. Right. Um, but it was verified with, with a lot more detail, you know. And we know, understand sort of the mechanics of it now, you know, as opposed to what was sort of hinted at, mm-hmm. you know, that he was once powerful um, and that his ex-wife had, you know, essentially destroyed him. That was really all we knew. Right. Now we know how that happened. But, uh, but again, yeah, their conversation is... Is pretty good. And they agree to stay together um, because it makes sense for Peron to have somebody to take him into Rujistan who can guide him around. And, uh, you know, it makes sense for Call to have somebody who uh, is not a wolf that's going to eat him <laughs> and has a horse so he can actually ride, you know. So I like, th- I like the way it ends. I like the way this section ends. And that's the section. That is the section. Now you can read. Now you can read. Are you? Uh, yeah. Now I can read. That's what I meant. I can read now. It's been so long, I forgot. Are you ready for listener interactions? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Josh Smith says, as a longtime reader of Malazan, I have no questions, but just wanted to say thank you for the highly entertaining content. Cheers. Well, thank you Cheers. very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Katrina Newton says, who is having a worse, she told me she was 18 moment, uh, Peron with baby tatter sale or Crocus with amnesiac sorry? I mean, I would say Crocus seems to be more distressed, but I would say definitely Peron. Oh I yeah, mean, definitely, definitely Peron. <laughs> well, especially because, um, Peron actually slept with tatter sale. Well, not when she was five. No, not when she was five, but. But the fact is, he had relationships with her when she was 200. Yeah. And now she's five. Crocus feelings are complicated. His feelings is way more complicated than, <laughs> than I'm with an assassin who has amnesia. Now, that's complicated, but, <laughs> but I, definitely have to, I definitely have to say, I think Crocus is having the worst. Uh, Gordon Ross says, do you prefer amnesiac sorry or monumentally mindfuck sorry? And do you expect her to be regularly recotillioned as the story progresses? <laughs> um, I 100% prefer monumentally mind fuck sorry. And Theo says, I briefly thought this was going to be a Radiohead question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I 100% prefer the cotillion brand of sorry. I kind of like amnesiac sorry really? because yeah. I feel like it's a, a, a fresh palette. Like what's going to happen next? No, I, I like the storyline overall, but I think, I think, a, you know, Deadly Assassin, sorry, is the more interesting character. Um, do you expect her to be rarely re-cotillioned as the story progresses? Actually ties into my prediction, so I'm not Ooh, going exciting. to. Ooh, exciting. I'm going to leave that alone. 
Okay, Matt Hargreaves says, who would win in a fight, Animator Rake or Homelander? Okay, ready? Mm. On one, three, we're going to say both say what we think. Okay, okay. ready? Right. One, one, two, three, Animander Rake. Rake. That's right. This time we actually... If I didn't right. know you were going to say that, I would have said Homelander. I know. That's why I said let's do it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no way. Dragnapur would block Homelander's little laser vision thing. And well, I think he shows up on the seam and Homelander gets a crazy migraine. and That's it. I mean, he took out those wolves like he walked up to them. His sword wasn't even out. And then like. Whack, whack. Like an anime character, like yeah. in a split second. <laughs> Yeah, but two of them were dead. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't think Homelander stands a chance. Nope. Livia says, first of all, love your podcast. Thank you. Um, do you plan to go through all ten books of the series? Would love if that happened. Um, any ideas what or who the obelisk is in the snapter of this book? Any theories on the visions Tok is having? All right. So one question at a time. So as for going through all 10 books of the series, don't know, but we're going to have to make our decision about the next book soon because we're only like three episodes away from from finishing this book. Right. So we have to make a decision about that soon. Um, yeah, we, we decided when we started this book that we were not going to make a commitment to finish the entire series because it is 10 books. Um, so we will have to make that determination, uh, but I would expect we'll make it soon. Yes. Uh, and again, we probably won't, again, even if we decide to move forward, we probably won't commit to reading all 10 books if we move on to the next book. We'll probably commit to read that book. Um, Chad is really bad with commitment. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. I'm kidding. Uh, any idea who or what the obelisk is in the snapter of this book? I mean, it seems to me that it's the obelisk atop the barrow. Mm -hmm. um, if it's meant to be representative of a person, I would imagine it's the uh, Jeku tyrant. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I think it is. And then as for the th theories about the visions that Tak is having, no. Because even if it is a, even if it is sort of a weird old wives tale, you know, in the seven, uh, seven cities that you lose an eye, you gain second sight, mm -hmm. which I completely made up on the spot. I have no idea if that's legitimate. Uh, I don't think that's what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. So I have no idea why he's getting this weird ability to have premonitions. Mm -hmm. Lori Phillips says, do you guys cheat on us with other books in between podcast episodes? What books? Who are they? Absolutely. Sorry, we are in an open relationship, you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry if you didn't know that. What are you reading outside of the podcast right now? So I just recently finished the 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 Book of the Ancestors. Is that what it's called? Yes, Book, the Book of, of the Ancestors. Yeah. It's uh, the trilogy by Mark. Mark Lawrence. Lawrence by Mark Lawrence, yeah, yep. which was which was good. I enjoyed it, uh, and I'm mm, maybe about halfway through Leviathan Wakes right now. Yeah, I'm so excited about that. So yeah, so that's been fun. What about you? I'm reading a couple of things. Um, I read uh, Naomi Novik's A Deadly Education. That was fantastic. I spent like a week after I finished that book, just angry that it was over, and I want the next one like now. Um, so that was excellent. I read, um, MR carries someone like me. Uh, he is the author of the, uh, the girl with all the gifts and the boy on the bridge. He writes a lot of like kind of 
supernatural fiction, uh, mystery fiction, and uh, that was that was really good as well. And a, a, a non science fiction book called um, "A Gentleman in Moscow," which is historical mm-hmm. fiction uh, about the you know the the turn of the century. Um, Russian Revolution. Russian Revolution. Yeah. Very ex- excellent book as well. Oh, and I started, I finally started Rhythm of War. I had to like work my way into the mindset for that one, but I read Don Shard. I loved it. Really loved Don Shard and um, started Rhythm of War, and it's fantastic. I'm halfway through. I don't know this Don Shard of which you speak. It's, um, it's a novella. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like Edge Dancer was. Is it sort of between sort the of books? In or? between books. Okay. All right. So yes, I read Don Shard, and I'm glad I did. There were a lot. Of, there was a lot of good stuff in there, and I'm cool. loving Rhythm of War. I know it's been reviews that I have read from from other, just kind of other fans, and on other um, pages are very mixed, but I love it so far. Theogram so Brown says, it. "Yeah, Theogram Brown says, no questions really, but I enjoyed this section a lot." Who are you and what have you done with our Theo? <laughs> are you okay? Yeah, send people to his house. Alexandra says, have you guys seen the whole discussion on whether Stevenson writes good characters or not? And Stevenson's Facebook post about character writing. What are your thoughts? I have not seen that. All right. I haven't seen that post. I would be interested in yeah. seeing it. I, I like his characters. Free, I would like to read yeah, it. Yeah. I like his characters. His characters are definitely what... What grabbed me when I first read the book, I felt like the magic system was very confusing and I didn't really really get a sense of the world building until I'd read it a couple of times, but I, I liked the characters right away. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. This book has the dangerous potential to really spin off into batshit crazy, but with no point. Mm-hmm. Like, batshit crazy just for the sake of it. Like, mm-hmm. Like an adolescent teenager's dream. Like, you know, uh, so if it wasn't well grounded in the characters in the world building, it, it could really be bad. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I do like the characters. Eric Allgaier says, how much experience do the Duke and or Duchess have with freeing hellhounds from magic sword realms? If the answer is none, what's the closest thing to it that they have done this week? Um, I mean, I have mine for sure. I know what mine is. Well, I, I know what yours is as well. <laughs> but I'll but I feel like you've earned the right to say it. So <laughs> ours is mine is a puppy with diarrhea waking up in the crate covered in said diarrhea. Three days in a row. Several days in a row. He's fine now. We got him on some medicine. But uh having to extract a diarrhea-covered puppy. That hellhound. That's your hellhound. That's my hellhound. And get him into the tub. Yeah, that's your magical sword realm. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting pretty good at it, actually. I mean... Sadly, not something I ever wanted to have proficiency <laughs> in, but... Gano's piranha got nothing on you. <laughs> Theo Graham Brown, actually... Okay, he kind of... All right, all right. We're, we're back in the game. We're back in the game. He says, actually, I did think Paran's, oh, cute little putty moment was a, was really quite funny. Dude, wake up. Stop treating tigers like a house cat. Right. right? That's exactly, exactly what we said. Exactly what we said. Come yeah. on, man. This is ludicrous. <laughs> All right. And we had one question from Twitter. And it is, it is the account Malazan Polster. So go follow Malazan Polster on Twitter. And they ask... 
I'd love to get your view on the underlying theme of convergent that's so evident in these chapters. Yeah, this um, this is definitely the book where the plot convergence happens. We have these characters coming together um, that their stories have been building in parallel so far. And um, it's really exciting for me. Definitely, um, Call and Peran's moment was my my favorite uh, example of that. It's funny because Call has not really been built up as a character. In fact, he's pretty much just spent most of the book laying in a drunken puddle while yeah, everybody else talked about him. Yeah, but it's it, people have talked about him, there's sort of this mystery about him. So, right. so I think him finally waking up and showing a personality and then, you know, you're relieved to find that he's actually, you know, a decent personality, mm-hmm. I think is encouraging. Yeah, it was as refreshing, engaging sort of conversation. But you have the, the conversation that happened um, earlier and it was Talk the Younger who said it and many, many, many people have said it uh, before this idea that you know power draws power, right? So at one point in the center of the Ribby Plain, uh, we have in a very very tight geographical area because it's all sort of centered around uh, Paran. We have Shadow Throne, we have the Great Crone, mm-hmm. we have Hairlock. We have, um, you know, Tattersail in her, you know, Tattersail 2.0 body, all in this, you know, very all within walking distance of each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the seven, you know, shadow hounds, you know, so so this concept that power draws power, you know, and, you know, there's a convergence because of that seems to be holding true. It's interesting to me that Paran is at the center of it because he doesn't really seem to have much to do with anything. Um, you could even argue, if you want to argue that, um, you know, Dragnapur was sort of co-located at that site, that you have Dragnapur and the male version of Opan in that mm-hmm. same area. But I would consider that a different place. But right. But all within this one character, you've got all of these very, very, very powerful figures you know, coalescing in one spot. And then in the Gadroby Hills, you have Cotillion and Sari sort of together, Krupp, uh, eventually Paran, you know, and Lorne and the Imass, not to mention there are a bunch of crows there as well. Mm-hmm. So so it definitely seems to be, you know, that power is drawing power. Mm-hmm. I really thought when Paran uh, ends up in that, stampede i really thought that was going to be the moranth you know when he started like there's a wall of dust i didn't know why but uh, that was just my initial impression it wasn't the moranth obviously all right are you ready for predictions yes all right i really only have a few predictions this time uh the first is talk is not dead okay i mean talk disappeared and then we had uh, i don't remember if it was quick i think it was quick ben Mm -hmm. who was like oh it's a shame that you know talk the younger disappeared um, to sort of hint to you that maybe Talk the Younger is dead, but I really don't think Talk the Younger is dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really do think Hairlock is dead. Mm-hmm. I real I I mean I wouldn't be shocked if somehow Hairlock built another mm-hmm. fail safe and his batshit crazy soul went another place. He's been built up as a character, so it wouldn't surprise me if that happened. But I don't think so. I think he's legitimately dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and this is where I mentioned in the questions that I was going to talk about uh, Cotillion showing up uh, back in Sari over and over again. Um, 
I think Cotillion is going to return to Sari's body, but I think it's going to be one time at the end of this book. Hmm. That's my prediction. All right. I like it. Yeah, I think Sari is pretty free from him for a while, but I think at one pivotal moment, he's going to pop back in. That's that's my take. All right, do you have anything else? I don't. Where right. can they find us? You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. D is in David, N is in Nancy, D is in David Podcast. You can find us on Facebook uh, at the Duke and Duchess. Or uh, if you want to find our Facebook group page, which is where most of the interaction and discussion happens, go to facebook.com slash groups slash the DND group. You can find us on all the other social medias, the Goodreads, the Instagrams, uh, the Reddits, etc., cetera, uh, just by searching for the Duke and Duchess podcast. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>